Well, we interrupt our normal horror broadcast from Revelation to bring you this special Palm Sunday message. We'll take a break from Revelation for the next two weeks as we are beginning Passion Week this morning, uh, and we're going to uh, look at what the Scripture has to say about Palm Sunday. So uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start there. I'm going to be in uh, two other main places today. Uh, If you want to save the spots, Exodus 12 and Luke 19 will be in those three sections of Scripture for the most part. I'll be referencing a few other places, but um, that will be the main essence of our study. We'll return to some of these verses later on, so even, if, even though you think we started Acts 10, you might want to save it because I will be returning back to a couple verses there at the end of the message. So Acts 10, Exodus 12, and Luke 19. Acts 10, Exodus 12, and Luke 19. Now, when we talk about the gospel message, the message of the gospel, it includes the, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and then, of course, his return to, to rule. That's all a part of the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter preached these things in Acts chapter 10, verse, verses 36 through 43. This was the first sermon preached uh, to the Gentiles. So he is invited to Cornelius' house. Well, the Lord... Uh, tells me to go, to go. He tells him ahead of time, and then Cornelius invites him to his house. Cornelius invites his family's there. He invites his friends there, and uh, and Peter is going to step into a Gentile's house to preach the gospel for the first time. And and you would think, if on a momentous occasion like this, that you would make sure you emphasize the necessary parts of the gospel, right? Like this, you you want to get it all correct, because if you mess this up, that that's not going to go well. And so what we get here is one of the clearest full presentations of the gospel uh, in the Scripture. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, Peter says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached. And what was that word, that message? Verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all those things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, Jesus' life, whom they slew and hanged on a tree, his death. Verse 40, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead, his resurrection. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, which was ordained of God to be the judge of the the living and the dead, the quick and the dead, his return to rule and reign. Verse 43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. That's the gospel right there. All of these elements of the gospel message are right here. Now, these were not new ideas. All of these elements of the gospel message were predicted in the Old Testament. And one of the places that the Old Testament does so is in the feasts of Israel. They all point to the gospel. 
Now, the first three feasts of Israel celebrate, uh, that they celebrated corresponded to the first three parts of the gospel message. Jesus' life, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus' death, we have the Feast of Passover. And Jesus' resurrection, we have the Feast of First Fruits. And so this morning, as we are celebrating Palm Sunday, I would like to examine the life of Christ, which is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and which was foreshadowed in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So turn to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read a section of Scripture from Leviticus 23 before we go to Exodus 12. But Leviticus 23 is where Moses is laying out the timing of these three feasts. So I want to give you a little bit of backdrop before we get into where this feast came from. So Exodus 12, I'm going to read from Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 11. It says in Leviticus 23, 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. So they all had set times when they were supposed to be done. In the 14th day of the first month, at evening, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you'll have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So the first day of unleavened bread is a, like a Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord for seven days. And in the seventh day, the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's also a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So again, you have another Sabbath at the beginning and the end of this feast. And then in verses 9, it goes on and it talks about when they do first fruits. So God gave instructions to Israel through Moses to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of Nisan. That's the first month of Israel's religious calendar. Then they were to celebrate the next day, unleavened bread, from the 15th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan. And then the Feast of First Fruits would be celebrated on the day after whatever Sabbath came after the end of unleavened bread. So after the 10th plague, where did this thing come about? Well, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh finally let Israel leave Egypt. And God instructed the nation of Israel to commemorate that event with two feasts. One feast, remember that God spared their firstborn when he saw the blood of the lamb on the door, the feast of Passover, right? And then one feast to remember how God suddenly changed the situation in Egypt. Remember, even all these plagues are happening, Pharaoh's saying, I will not let you go, I will not let you go. And then sometimes he'd say, yeah, I'll let you do this, but then he'd go back on it. There was no hope that they were ever going to leave Egypt through all this situation other than the promise of God. And then all of a sudden, after the 10th plague, things radically changed. There wasn't like a sit down, have a meeting. It was no, get out. And so it was so sudden that they didn't have time to bake their bread with leaven. The Lord said, have your traveling clothes on, get ready to go, because he is going to kick you out as soon as this plague is done. And we find this command to celebrate that event, that they were, had to suddenly leave Egypt, that they were suddenly set free by the Lord from their slavery in Egypt here in Exodus 12, verses 15 through 20, to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says in verse 15 of Exodus 12, seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. In the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in, them, done in them except that which man every man must eat, that only may be done of you. 
And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, this is why you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month and the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall you eat only unleavened bread. So here we see... If you read other scriptures, you'll find there are also national components to the feast, but these are the personal components to the feast. This is what every Israeli had to do. And there were three personal components here. First off, you had to take time to go through your home and get rid of all the leaven in the home. Secondly, that's, that's uh, verse 15. He says, you know, even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. The second component is you could do no work on the first day of the feast and the last day of the feast. We saw that in verse 16. And then thirdly, during the seven days, you can only eat unleavened bread. Now, God spells out in verse 17 very clearly why they're remembering, or what they're remembering, and why they're celebrating. They are remembering and celebrating the freedom that he gave them from their slavery in Egypt. It says, for in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. That's why you do this. Now, as the Israeli people through the centuries have celebrated this feast. There are many traditions that have sprung up around the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, one of the most commonly used leavening agents is yeast. And so in preparation for this feast, all yeast and all products with yeast in them have to be removed from the home. They actually begin this process not on the start of the feast, but the month of the feast from the first day. They start clearing all products with any type of leavening agent, primarily yeast products, out of the home. I, but that's not always an easy task. It's not like you just go grab the roll of, you know, um, you know, bread and just chuck it into the trash or give it away. I was eating last night. I had a, a, a sandwich that my wife made for me, and, and I was uh, relaxing in a chair and, uh, and eating rather than at the table. And so I'm trying to be careful because every time I took a bite, what happens? Well, the bread just doesn't cooperate. You know, little breadcrumbs spread everywhere, Right. Well, because bread leaves behind breadcrumbs, part of the cleaning is going through the home with a brush to sweep away any possible offenders. Uh, one Jewish mother with very young children said, it's easy to find the obvious loaves of bread, but you have to really hunt for the Cheerios between the couch cushions. And if you have kids, you understand. Now, if that sounds tedious, thinking, how can I get every breadcrumb out of my house? If it sounds tedious, that's because it is. It's impossible for you to eliminate every crumb of leaven from your home. Now, there's a lesson in that we'll get to uh, later on today. In addition to this, it's very common in Jewish homes as they get to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to hide some of leaven products in an obvious place, and then the children are basically, they're going to find the final pieces of leaven that are in the home, and then they bring them to dad, and dad disposes of them, usually puts them in a fire or something, and then he declares that the home is finally leaven-free. So, what is God's deal with leaven? Does he just not like Ritz crackers? I mean, what, what's the deal? Why is he telling people they're going to be cut off, you know? Well, Jesus, interestingly enough, when he taught on the earth, he taught his disciples to beware of the leaven of the religious leaders 
and the leaven of Herod. He said, beware of both those things. Leaven in the scripture speaks of how sin, how false teaching are both dangerous because of how quickly they can infect a person's life and a community. Uh, Very similar to how yeast spreads in bread. And so cleaning the home and eating only unleavened bread is a picture that represents how God set his people free from the slavery of Egypt, but also from the slavery of their sin. And so it was very important to the Lord that no one use any leaven during the entirety of the feast. Exodus chapter 12 mentions this eight times in just six verses. You know, one of the things that is often forgotten when we think about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that the seventh day after the Exodus, so what would become the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's the same day that God destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea when their slavery was finally put away, when their slavers were finally eradicated, when they were forever freed from their bondage. You see, God promised total freedom to Israel, and that's what this feast is all about. Now, Feast of Unleavened Bread comes right after Passover, and so there are connections between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. In fact, fact, there is a Passover element uh, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one that shows up in the Feast of Passover when they had to examine the Passover lamb. Now, they weren't looking for leaven in the Passover lamb, but if you read in chapter 12 of Exodus in verses 5 and 6, it mentions that on the 10th day of the month, they would bring the lamb into their home that they were going to slaughter. And someone told me this morning, a Jewish believer, they told me this morning that uh, three and a half days is when they would slaughter the lamb. And of course, how long was Jesus' ministry on the earth? It was for three and a half years. Three and a half years they observed him. He lived with them. That's why you would bring this lamb into your home. It's where it says in Exodus 12 verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, unleavened. It shall be a male the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. It couldn't be just a, you know, some prized lamb that you had you know, prepared for this. You had to take it from the common flocks, you know? Just like Jesus had to become a man. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. For three and a half days, a little lamb would be walking around the house. Kids would probably name it, you know. You'd be inspecting it, you know. You know, you had to make sure it didn't have any broken bones. It didn't have a, a blind eye or it didn't have, you know, a, a bum leg or it didn't have a bad attitude. People laugh even for 25 years of telling that joke. No leaven, no blemish. And when that's over, and this thing has lived with you for three and a half years, you've observed it, examined it. Then it says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. That sounds a bit overkill for one little lamb. Everybody's going to jump it. Of course, that's not what is happening here. There's more meaning to that, but you've got to come to Good Friday service to learn that. During those two weeks... Or the, I'm sorry, the the the, uh, the four days. You would ensure that your lamb was qualified to be the Passover lamb. They say, well, "What does that have to do with Palm Sunday, Pastor Will? What does that have to do with Jesus' life? That part of the gospel." 
Why is Jesus' life so important as it relates to Palm Sunday? Well, it's because of what the people look to Jesus for on Palm Sunday. Turn to Luke 19, and we're going to track through some things here in Luke 19, but, but as you're there, I want to read a couple of verses from Luke 12 on the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, because Luke doesn't give us this information. In John 12, verses 12 and 13, It says, and on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was come to, coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, palm trees are not, you might find them in Jerusalem now because they've been brought in, but they're not native to that, that area of, of the promised land. However, the route that you would take, one would normally take to come down to Jerusalem is not the straight north to south route. You would not come through those mountains. You would come down from Galilee or, or from the mountains of Judea. You'd come down into the Jordan Valley, and then you would come down that valley, and, and then when you hit Jericho, which is the city of palm trees, you would make a turn up to you guys. It would be that way. You'd make a turn west to come to into, up to Jerusalem, and you'd begin to come up into the Judean hills, the mountains, and, and make the trek to Jerusalem. And so as, as they were coming down to Jericho, you're getting closer to Jerusalem. As Jesus, we'd, we learn about that. He comes, he actually comes through Jericho, preaches as he's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and it mentions that, that, that the people get their palm trees and they find out Jesus is headed that way. This massive crowd is following. And, and as he's coming to, and he comes to the Mount of Olives, they begin waving these palm branches back and forth and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, rescue us. Blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the one. You're the one who can rescue us. You know, the palm branches were not a part of Passover. They're a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Waving palm branches before the Lord is, is nothing new to, to an Israeli. That was a common part of their heritage, but not during Passover. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles. The reason they waved the palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles is because what they celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles was that we're not in the desert anymore. I don't have to make my tent every night and look up at the stars because now I'm home. Now I'm free. Now I'm in the land. And they would wave it before the Lord saying, Lord, thanks for setting us free from Egypt and thanks for bringing us home. And so as they're waving those branches in front of Jesus, what they're saying is, is, we're not free. Set us free, please. Set us free again. Do you see us here? Rescue us. Now what qualified Jesus to be the one who could give them this freedom in their mind? Why did they look to him? Well, first off, Jesus promised he would set them free. In John chapter 8, we have that famous verse where it mentions that, um, that many believed on Jesus. He, he had a, a powerful moment there where he was teaching and many believed on him. And Jesus said, well, listen, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The verse that we're all familiar with. People who aren't even believers use that verse, you know? <laughs> He promised them freedom. 
know, it's funny when he said that, they didn't react very well to that. <laughs> uh, it says that the, many of the religious leaders there, they said, uh, uh, we, we are Abraham's, you know, uh, Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to any man. And you're like, uh, do you not remember Egypt? How about taking a look at the Antonia Fortress up there right next to the temple and all the Roman soldiers up there? What do you mean you've never been in bondage to any man? You're in bondage right now. And Jesus there in in John chapter 8, in response to that, he said this in verse 34. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is a servant of sin. And a servant does not abide in the house forever. But the Son abides forever. I'm not a servant of sin. Look at me. Examine me. I I don't have any leaven. You do, but I don't. And if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He had told them. He had promised them that, that he was that unblemished lamb, that he was the one who was unleavened, that he, he promised them freedom. And secondly, as he invited them to examine his life, for three and a half years they did. For three and a half years he walked in their midst, lived amongst them. They knew his name. And in those three and a half years there was no fault to be found. It was perfect love that brought Jesus from heaven to earth. He had received a prophetic announcement from God's servant, John the Baptist. He had purely lived out God's law his entire life, and he had poured into others doing good everywhere he went, is what Peter tells us. He went about doing good everywhere he went. That's why they looked to him. He had promised them freedom, and they had examined his life, and they said, you're the one. You're the one who can set us free. You're the unblemished lamb. You're the unleavened bread. Set us free. So here's the big question. (laughs) We know that things didn't work out like they seemed they would on that Palm Sunday, right? We know that's not how it ended. In fact, we know it, it took a very quick turn in a different direction. Jesus knew that would happen. Because the same day that people were crying out, Hosanna, set us free, save now, the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, this is when he came near. So this is after they've said these things, after they've been praising him, saying, you're the one, set us free. It says he came near to the city, he beheld it, he looked at it, and he wept over it. And this is not the weeping of a, a tear just kind of coming down out of the corner of the eye and rolling down the cheek. This is of convulsive sobbing. Jesus was a, a mess emotionally. He was heartbroken, saying, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace, if you had only understood, what didn't they understand? Why, why did this not happen the way that they kind of looked at it in that moment? What didn't they understand about this special day? What about him did they get wrong? Well, I can promise you this. It wasn't Jesus' unblemished life. 
It's not like they all of a sudden looked at him and, and, and then like two days afterwards, news came out that Jesus had a mistress or, or Jesus had been unfaithful in the ministry or been unfaithful with finances or, or mom and dad did an expose on him, you know, and it came out. I can guarantee you there was nothing about his life that they examined and they thought, well, no, he's not, he's not unleavened. When John the Baptist was in prison and he was getting discouraged, he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? I mean, this is not how I thought this would play out, Jesus. I mean, we, 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 we talked about this. <laughs> You're my cousin. We talked about this. This is not how I expected it to work out. I did not imagine a prison ministry. Should we look for somebody else? And Jesus' answer was clear. Tell John I'm doing everything that the Messiah was prophesied to do. Tell him what you see. Tell him I'm doing everything that the Scripture says the Messiah would do. So it's not Jesus' unblemished life that only leaves his promise. That's the, that can be the thing that, that they misunderstood. So was Jesus lying to them when he said he'd set them free? No. Or was it possible they didn't want the freedom that Jesus offered? What did Jesus offer them on Palm Sunday? What kind of Savior did Jesus claim to be? You know, it's interesting, when we read through this section here of the triumphant entry, this Palm Sunday experience, we read in verse 29 of Luke 19 that it came to pass when Jesus came near to these two villages, he sent two of his disciples into one of them, and he said to them, verse 30, go you into the village opposite you, in the which at, at, ent- at your entering, right when you come in, you're going to find a colt tied whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, untie him, and bring him here. And if anybody asks you, why, why are you taking my colt? <laughs> why are you loosening him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord has need of him. If you underline things in your Bible, that might be a good phrase to underline, the Lord. Now we go down further as they bring the colt. And then in verse 37, the disciples are spreading. And this is not just the 12, but this is this crowd that's come with Jesus. They have spreading their clothes on the, the, the way, a kingly procession. They're putting down those, those olive branches down, you know, the uh, olive branches, the um, palm branches down on the road for him to walk over a victorious kingly procession. Verse 37, and when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of these disciples, so these are people who've been following Jesus, they're for Jesus, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Might be good to underline that phrase. And then verse 39, some of the disciples from among the multitude. So these are not disciples, these are not Pharisees who are against Jesus. Um, They're not necessarily opposed to Jesus. They're traveling with Jesus. They're part of the traveling group of disciples. These are likely not Pharisees that are are ready to kill him right now. Um, And they say something else. When they see this, multitude saying that he's the king, he's the king, he's going to set us free. They said unto him, Master, which means teacher, rebuke your disciples. Might be another master, another word to underline. Because Jesus calls himself the Lord. 
The, the disciples, they call him the king that comes in the name of the Lord, and the Pharisees, they call him teacher. Now, all of those things are true. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and he is a teacher. But there's a big difference between the Lord, God's rep on earth, and teacher. There are, there's a difference. And I find it interesting that Jesus refers himself to himself as the Lord. After Jesus came into the city, the Bible tells us in another gospel that he went up to the temple, he, he observed some things there, and then he left, went back out into one of the villages, probably Bethany. And then the next day he came back, first thing in the morning, and he drove out all the merchandisers, drove them out of the temple. And then it says something else in another gospel. It mentions that, you know, as like Joe Painter's coming in, you know, he's got this stuff like, oh man, I'm running late. I got to get my pictures of Moses and my pictures of, you know, all these different individuals in the Bible. I can set them up and I can sell them right here in the temp- temple as people are coming to make their offerings. As Joe Painter's walking up, Jesus is like, uh, you get or get, get. He didn't let, the Bible says he didn't let anybody in who had merchandise. No one, only worshipers. And when they hear this, the religious leaders hear this, they come storming down to the Temple Mount. They're like, Jesus has taken over the Temple Mount. We got to go find out what's going on here. So in Luke 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, It came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and he preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders, and they spoke unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is he that gave you this authority? What are you doing here? You don't have the right to do this. It's almost like Jesus said, what do you mean I don't have the right? I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. And so he asked him a question. He says, well, you got a question for me. I got a question for you. Answer me. John's baptism, was that from the Lord or from men? And they confer. They get in the huddle. And they're like, Bob, if we tell him it's from the Lord, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? And the guy's going, Fred's saying, yeah, but if we say he was not the Lord, tell him it was from men, the people think John the Baptist is a prophet, and they're going to kill us. We're stuck. We can't win. They said, we don't know. We don't know, Jesus. We haven't figured that out yet. And Jesus says, if, if you don't want to have an honest conversation, then I'm, we're done. I'm happy, I'm happy to answer your questions. If you've got issues, I'm happy to talk with you. But if you don't want to have an honest conversation, we're done. And then Jesus does something interesting. While they're still there, he begins to speak to the people. And he gives the parable of the vineyard. It says in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20, Then began he to speak this, to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and he loaned it out to husbandmen, farmers. He leased it out to farmers. Very common thing back then. And he went into a far country for a long time. And the idea is, is there was some contract set up between the landowner and the people who actually farmed it where they would get wages or they would get a portion of the crops. There was some contract set up about how they would earn money, and then everything else would go to the landowner. And so the landowner says, I want to bring my income in. Verse 10. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen, that the farmers, that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen, the farmers, they beat this servant and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third servant and they wounded him also and cast him out. Well, then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do 
Ah, I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. When Jesus spoke this parable to the people, they knew exactly what he was talking about. That the vine was the symbol of Israel. If you walked into the temple, the temple gates were, they were, they had a, they were basically one big vine. They were constructed like a vine branch. And, and, and they knew. We have the, the parable that Isaiah speaks of about this vine. I have a lovely vine, the Lord says. And it's, it's referring to the nation of Israel. They understood this. So much so that when they kill the son, and the landowner finds out, and, and, and Jesus asks the question, and what will the landowner do to those farmers? He will come swiftly and destroy them because of what they've done. And he will give his vineyard to someone else. And the people, they cry out, God forbid, God would never do that. We're his people. We're, that, can, that can't not be. <laughs> they were horrified by that idea. They knew what was being referenced in this parable, that the Lord of the vineyard is the Lord. It's God. And they're the vineyard. And if that's the case, which it is, then Jesus is calling his father the Lord of the vineyard and he's calling himself his father's beloved son, the one who carries all the authority of the father. And his father's hope is what? That they will reverence his son The word that Jesus used when he said, tell them the Lord has need of this cult. The Lord is the word krios. It's a word that means he to whom a person belongs, about which he, the the one that you belong to, he has the power of deciding. It is a very clear imagery here of a master and a slave, an owner and someone who belongs to the owner. That the owner calls the shots because the servant belongs to him. The freedom that Jesus offered to the people was his absolute ownership. He said, I will set you free from your sin to become mine. And thus, this proper view of freedom begins with reverence for the son. The king who doesn't just come in the name of the Lord. He does do that. But he is the king who is the Lord, not a king who lets me be Lord. Jesus did not promise them a freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. It wasn't a freedom to anarchy in their lives, a freedom to just, well, I'm the one who chooses what I want to do. I'm the one who decides. It was a freedom from sin and a transition to the ownership of the Lord. And that is what the people did not understand. That is what Jesus said when, meant when he said, if you only understood the day of your visitation. This is where Jesus disappointed him, them. And this is where Palm Sunday and the Feast of Unleavened Bread take on meaning now for us 2,000 years later. How do we properly celebrate or respond to the truths of, of Palm Sunday, to the, to, to the truths of, of, of Jesus' life, that part of the gospel. Listen, <laughs> you can try to sweep out every crumb of sin from your life. 
You could try to get every crack and every crevice. You could try to get every possible dust moat. <laughs> but like the Cheerios that fall between the couch cushions, it is an impossible task. You ever, you remember the, what are those, the, 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 like kids' first cookies? You know those disintegrating abominations? I hated those things. I wanted to vomit every time I saw my kid eating them. Because they're just like, oh my goodness, it's just destruction everywhere, you know? You're not eating a cookie, you are mauling that thing, and it is just falling apart. And we would, and of course, you know, the child, because he's so young, that's why you're giving him his first cookie, or her, they're so young, they they don't know how to, you know, what what do you do when I'm done? You stick it in the couch, you stick it in a corner, you're under, under something, you know? And we would find these things everywhere. I was telling a story first service. I'll make it briefer uh, right now because we're getting close to time. But um, I, I used to watch the kids uh, when ladies' Bible study happened at the other church I pastored. And so they dropped them off at the house. And, and you know, I would spend the day, you know, knowing they were coming. I'm like, okay, I need to get, make sure because these are little guys. There can't be any junk on the ground they can eat. And I'd try to do my very best to make sure the area we would, they would be would be clean. And so, you know, I'd put the barricades up in the areas that I hadn't had a chance to clean. And I would, I'd make sure I had the gates up so they couldn't get to this room, whatever. And I had this one kid. I didn't even know how quick it would happen. I would just take my eyes off for a second, and somehow he'd be through the barricade, and he'd, be, and he'd have one of those disintegrations in his hand. I'm thinking, man, I, I thought I got every one of those. You know, where did you find that? You and I, it's an impossible task to cleanse ourselves from our own sin. We cannot save ourselves. I cannot be my own Lord. I need a Savior. I need a King who is my Lord. And this is the gospel that Peter preached to Cornelius and his friends in Acts chapter 10, verse 33. When at the very end of his sermon, he says to them, to him, uh, I'm sorry, verse 43, 1043, to him, Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is not something I can conjure up. It's something I have to receive. It's something that has to be done for me. I have to be rescued from them. And this is the same gospel that the Christians in Jerusalem rejoiced in when they heard the news later on that Cornelius and all of his family and friends had received Christ. In Acts eleven eighteen, it says, and when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God saying, wow, then God has also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Jesus' life attributed to them. And so I ask you this morning, Have you repented of your sins? And have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received the life and forgiveness the King of Kings offers you, the only one who can offer it, the only one who can grant it? Because if your idea of God or your idea of of Jesus, your idea of salvation is this concept that, that, well, somebody just needs to just, you know, set me free from all the things that are bad in my life or set me free from all the things I don't like about life, you know, set me free from all the things that, that, that other people do in life that I don't like so that I can do what I want. That is not what Jesus offers. And it doesn't actually rescue you from anything. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, repent. 
Repent. He loves you. He's the best boss you could have. He's the best owner you could have. He's the best master you could have because his thoughts towards you are always good. And his promise is true that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, if you'll do that, the Bible says you'll be unleavened too. You'll be unleavened. Christians are unleavened. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. Christians are unleavened. And I'm going to close with these two verses, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. Paul's dealing with the church at Corinth. They've got sexual morality going on in the church, and they've got some wrong ideas theologically. They're kind of going, well, this is awesome. I mean, even though everybody's still sinning and everything, you know, we're, we're free in Christ, and, and, and God's grace is awesome. And, and, and Paul has to explain to them, you got this off. Grace isn't a license to, to do what you want. You need to deal with sin. You need to call people to, to come away from sin, not comfort them in their sin. And he then applies the Feast of Unleavened Bread to our lives as Christians. He says, therefore, verse 7, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Guys, we are not sinless. It's not like I never sin anymore, but our sins have been washed away, amen? You're un- that's what it means, that you're unleavened. So the idea that Paul is conveying here is, let's be those who walk worthy of such a gift. You know, he, he says, listen, don't celebrate the, the, feast of pa- uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the old leaven. Don't just go back to the rituals of Leviticus and Exodus 12. I mean, you could do all those things, that's fine, but if that's all you're doing, you're missing the point. Don't, that's not what he's saying to celebrate the feast. He goes, don't keep the feast that way, but do it this way. And also don't do it this way, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Let's leave behind malice. Malice means an, an evil attitude that isn't ashamed to break God's laws. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And let's leave behind wickedness. Wickedness means evil plans and evil desires. Let's leave behind false ideas of freedom that leave us as the ones who call the shots. And let's embrace our Lord, our King who is our Lord. And instead, let's live in the freedom that King Jesus offers us, a life of sincerity and truth. Sincerity means to be pure from corruption. You know, that that we are, you know, becoming more like Christ rather than allowing the influences of our flesh and of the world and of the enemy to corrupt, have a corrupting influence in us that we're going the opposite direction, right? That we're growing forward, becoming more like Jesus, not becoming more like what we were saved from. And then truth, God's word. Let's live alive according to God's word. Does that describe your life as a Christian? Guys, we've been given new life from Jesus. We've been set free from the bondage of sin by our King. And Palm Sunday is a great day to recommit ourselves to that way of life, isn't it? Let's all stand. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and and received the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, you never believed on him, you know, 
If you never believe I'm the beloved son of God, and that the Lord wants, says, I want you to reverence him. I want, I want you to let him be Lord. Let him be in charge of your life. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you as, as the guys lead us in song, you know, tell them that. Say, Lord, I repent. I've been going my own way. I've been my own boss. I've, I've been my own Lord. I've been my, tried to be my own king. But I want to be set free from my sin and I want to follow you. I want to give you that reverence that you deserve as the son of God, as the king who is Lord. And here's God's promise to you. He will set you free. So I encourage you as we sing, pray that prayer. Lord, we give ourselves to you now as we're gonna close with worship. We do wanna recommit ourselves to that idea, the the Palm Sunday idea that you are the Lord. And Lord, you want us. In the same way you wanted that cult, you had a purpose for him, you want us. You want us in relationship with you. You want us to spend eternity with you. You want us to walk with you. You want us to share uh, you with others. Your desire is that we would follow you, our king, our shepherd, wherever you take us. And Lord, we recommit ourselves to that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.